We are all hanging on to hope for a COVID-19 vaccine or a treatment. And scientists around the globe are working furiously and collaboratively to bring us one. Well, in this episode, we want to honor two Nobel Prize recipients whose work on viruses led to vaccines and treatments that have been saving lives, millions of lives, for decades. Gertrude Ellian and Baruch Bloomberg. You may not know their names, but their discoveries are among the greatest medical achievements of the 20th century. The vaccine hunters of today are standing on their shoulders. This is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Academy, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. The answer is there, and you've got to hunt for it. And so the faith is really that there is an answer somewhere and that you can't uh, just give up. You've got to find it. Now, there's so many things still to be found, and I still have faith that they will be found. That's Gertrude, or Trudy, Ellian, talking about her work on viruses. We'll meet our other guest, Baruch Bloomberg, in just a bit. Trudy Ellian was interviewed by the Academy of Achievement in 1991, and she died in 1999. But while I listened to this interview, there were moments when I had to remind myself she was not talking about the current pandemic. Here's just one instance, when our interviewer, Gail Eichenthal, asked whether there was any hope of curing viruses. That's difficult. There are some viruses probably one can cure, but mostly if you think about viral diseases, the big successes have been vaccination. It was true of polio, it's true of smallpox, it's true of measles. When you can get a good vaccine and prevent the disease, that's the best thing you can do. But the next best is if you can prevent the virus from becoming latent. Now the reason it's so hard to cure virus diseases is that the virus may stop multiplying and you can stop it from multiplying, but it doesn't necessarily go away. It stays dormant in some cell types, depending on the virus, and comes back. The patient gets elderly, the patient gets sick from some other disease, the patient gets into an emotional state, and suddenly this virus reappears. And it's true of the AIDS virus. It goes and actually integrates into the normal DNA of the cell. And until it comes out and tries to reproduce itself, it just sits there and there's not much you can do about it. So you could prevent it from getting there, if you could prevent it from integrating, 
if you could kill off every cell in which it was integrated, maybe you could cure it. Is that possible? Nothing is impossible. Sadly, we don't have Trudy Ellian to join the fight against COVID-19. She was born in 1918, the year of the great flu pandemic, and she achieved the near impossible many times in her life. Let's just start with that Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1988, which she shared with her colleague George Hitchings and a British researcher named James Black. Elian was only the fifth woman to receive the Nobel in medicine, and she had no PhD or medical degree. Also, she made her scientific contributions while working for a pharmaceutical company. So highly unusual, it never occurred to her she could win a Nobel. The Nobel Committee said any one of the life-saving medications she created could have earned her the prize, but instead they lauded her more for the approach she took with George Hitchings in developing new drugs, an approach now referred to as rational drug design. In kind of, if possible, layperson's terms, how did that approach differ from the traditional approach of developing drugs? Well, the traditional approach was to take something that worked and to make some changes on it, or to take things off the shelf and try them. Uh, Things that had never been looked at before, either natural products or just chemicals. What they were doing in pharmaceutical companies was saying, I want to develop a diuretic. I'm going to test every one of these compounds as a diuretic even though you don't know what the mechanism is. Well, we didn't do that. I mean, we made specific kinds of chemicals with very specific ideas in mind. For over four decades, Trudy Ellian and George Hitchings examined and compared the biochemistry of viruses, parasites, bacteria, and normal human cells versus cancerous cells. Ms. Ellian focused her work on purines, a class of chemicals that are building blocks of DNA and RNA. In those early years, they didn't even know the structure of DNA. That would come later from Watson and Crick. But their hypothesis was that you could manipulate purines in such a way as to stop DNA production. In other words, stop certain cells from growing. It worked. Trudy Ellian was able to stop leukemia in its tracks but it was too toxic to patients. So Ms. Ellian did experiments exploring the metabolism of the compound she'd created to come up with a better one. She tweaked, she subbed a sulfur in for an oxygen, and finally she arrived at a drug that's still commonly used today in the cure for childhood leukemia. And we learned a lot about biochemistry with these compounds. We learned some of the pathways that existed but which we hadn't really identified before. So the the compounds themselves ended up being tools for discovery as well as ends in themselves. And that I think is one of the most important things about discovering new drugs is to let the the drug lead you to the the answer that nature is trying to hide from you. And we were able to deduce that certain enzymes existed, even we didn't have a name for them. And then these enzymes were discovered. And it was this wonderful feeling of 
there it is. It was there. We knew it was there. Now it has a name. Here are some of the diseases that met their match in Trudiellian. Leukemia, as we've heard, but also malaria, lupus, hepatitis, arthritis, gout, herpes. She also developed the first immune-suppressing drug used to prevent tissue rejection in transplant recipients. That one transformed the world of kidney transplantation. And late in life, the colleagues who'd trained under her identified the first successful HIV-AIDS drug, AZT. But here's a near-impossible feat that Trudy Ellian achieved much earlier in life. She became a biochemist, period. Not an easy task for a woman in her era. But starting when she was 15, she had only one goal, to cure disease. I liked everything in school. I, I enjoyed learning things. But I had no specific bent toward science until a grandfather who died that summer of uh, stomach cancer. And I was very close to him because he came over from Europe when I was about three years old and lived very close to us and used to take me to the park and tell me stories. And when my brother was born about two years later, he spent more time with me while my mother was busy with the baby. And so we got to be very close. And, uh, and also, I watched him die, essentially, in the hospital, and it made a terrific impression on me. I decided that nobody should suffer that much. Of course, a lot of people watch a loved one die of cancer, but most do not go on to dedicate their lives to science. It was a critical time in my life when this happened because I was just leaving high school, having to make some sort of decision on what my future would be. And it was, you know, it was so dramatic that it made such an impression at that critical moment. If it had happened earlier, perhaps it wouldn't have. Trudy Ellian says she knew she needed to study either biology or chemistry. When she thought about dissecting animals, though, she chose the chemistry path. Madame Curie was a great inspiration to her, but when Gail Eichenthal asked her who inspired her the most, the answer was simple, her mother. Because she was a housewife, she had no higher education, but had the most common sense of anyone I knew and wanted for me to have a career. And so she was always very supportive at a time when many other Uh, I think women of her generation would not have been. Um, She also was a self-taught person. She read prodigiously. She didn't have anything beyond a high school education, but all through the years in high school, college, when I brought home books in the literature, she would read every one of the books that I read. I think she herself probably felt deprived that she had never been able to do anything more. She married very young, 19. She had a child when she was over, a little over 20. And from then on, she, her career was in the house, as most women's was. At the all-girls school she attended, the science teachers didn't seem to take their task seriously. The students were, after all, only girls. But Ms. Ellian said that didn't affect her path, and she wasn't really conscious of the sexism she'd face for a few more years. It didn't occur to me, frankly, that it was an unusual direction at the time. I realized it very soon after I got out of college, when nobody wanted to hire me. 
that it was an unusual direction. But at the time, it was just learn what you have to learn and as much as you can and don't think about whether it's the right direction or the wrong direction for a woman. But then came the rude awakening, discrimination. It really wasn't until I got out of college and started looking for a job. And it, it really hit me because I had done well in school. I was graduated summa cum laude. I thought, well, you know, there's no reason somebody won't give me try. But um, wherever I went, it was, it was a depression time. It was a time there weren't many jobs to begin with. And what there were, they couldn't see any reason to take a woman. They would interview me for long periods of time, but then they would say, well, we think you'd be a distracting influence in the laboratory. Well, I guess I was kind of cute at the age of 19, but I can't imagine that I would have been a distracting influence. I would have been so busy working that, you know, but anyway, it was very discouraging. Three to four months after graduation, there was no sign that the brick wall was crumbling. And I said, well, I'm going to have to earn a living. I guess I better go to secretarial school. And so I started secretarial school, and I worked, I went for six weeks. And just at that point, someone offered me a job as a lab assistant in a school of nursing for three months. It was a trimester. So I dropped secretarial school and took this three-month job, and then I was out of a job again. But once I tried secretarial school, I knew that I couldn't, I wouldn't ever stay there. It was only six weeks was about as much as I could take. (laughs) The lab work paid $200 for the three months. And she said in this interview, she always remembered that amount because each month she would go to the bank to cash her check for $66.66. That only covered car fare and lunches. So she lived at home. Well, then I, after this three-month job, I was again out of a job. And I ran into someone at a party, a chemist who had a lab. Uh, he worked by himself in a, in a factory building, essentially. And I asked if I could come and work for him. And he said, yes, but he couldn't pay me. I said, that's all right. I still need the experience. So I went to work for him. And I, he was a very good organic chemist. And I worked for him for a year and a half. At the end of that time, he was paying me $20 a week. So. From that, I saved enough to go to graduate school. At NYU, where she got her master's degree and was the only woman in her chemistry classes. And then there was still no job. But then I went into teaching high school chemistry and physics for two years. And uh, then the war came. And then there were jobs. All of a sudden, there were people, there were jobs and nobody to fill them. So I I left teaching at the end of two years and uh, began to work again in a laboratory, only this time not in research, doing food analysis for the A&P chain, you know, measuring interesting things like the acidity of pickles and the color of mayonnaise. (laughs) But it was a good experience because she learned the instrumentation. After a year and a half, though, when she was ready to try again to get a serious research job, she suffered a devastating loss. The death of someone I loved very much. And after that, I really, I sort of put myself into my work in a way perhaps that I wouldn't have otherwise. 
I might have gotten married and it just didn't happen because the person I was engaged to died of a disease that could have been cured by penicillin, but there was no penicillin. And that was another lesson I learned, how important some discoveries can be in life-saving. And uh, years later, you know, thinking back on it and saying, if only there had been penicillin. And it was a good lesson. Penicillin became widely available soon after. By then, Gertrude Ellion had managed to get her first real medical research job. And then in 1944, she landed in the place she would call home for the next four decades, Burroughs Welcome, a small and unusual pharmaceutical company that funneled its profits into a nonprofit research fund. The person who took a chance on her there was Dr. George Hitchings, the very person she would share the Nobel Prize with 44 years later. I just turned up out of the blue. I called the company for an interesting reason. My, my father was a dentist, and he had samples of some head of pain medication that Burr's Welcome made. And he said, oh, you know, Tuckahoe, New York's not very far from where we live. Why don't you see if they have a job? I called them up and said, could I come for an interview? And they said, yes, they did have some openings. So on a Saturday morning, I went up there, was interviewed by Dr. Hitchings, and a week later, he offered me the job. And he said, at the time, I, didn't, I had a little experience by then. I had um, gotten my master's degree in organic chemistry. And uh, he was one of these unusual people, his other assistant was a woman, by the way, that didn't care whether it was a man or a woman, and gave us equal opportunity, I'm sure, to anyone else he would have hired. Uh, so I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate that he happened to be there that Saturday morning, because they worked on alternate Saturdays. <laughs> It would have been someone else on the next Saturday. And then she probably never would have developed all those medicines that saved all those lives. That's correct. I'm quite sure. At Burroughs Welcome, she was readily accepted, gender and all. At least she thinks she was. She was so busy learning and so focused on the work, she said, she wouldn't have noticed any resentful jabs or rolled eyes. And remember, she got this job as Dr. Hitching's assistant without having a PhD. I mean, I was making magnificent sum of $50 a week, and uh, I was expected more or less to do what I was told. I mean, I was told to make certain compounds and look it up in the library, see how it was done, and so on. And I did start my PhD at that time. I started going at night out to Brooklyn, to Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute. For two years, I went uh, three nights a week from Westchester County all the way out to Brooklyn, back to the Bronx where I lived. And I was happily thinking, well, in about 10 years, I'll have my doctorate. Then the dean said, no, you can't do that because we want you to come full time. If you're serious about it, you'll give up your job. And I said, no way. I'm not going to give up that job. It's the one I've really been looking for. And I discussed it with Dr. Hitchings, and he said, you don't need to get a doctorate. You can do it all without. I'm not sure I believed him at the time, but I decided to take the chance. 
It was a pretty daring thing for him to say, but clearly he recognized her talents and her hard work. It was very daring. I've never questioned him about it. I think he thought there was a certain gleam and a certain intensity in my work that it would, it would take me a little longer, perhaps, without a PhD, but he was prepared to give me the opportunity. And uh, that's what made the difference. Not everyone would have done that. It isn't the path, she said, that she'd recommend to younger people, but it was the only one that made sense to her. It just was the wrong time for me to drop my, my job, and it had been too difficult to find the right kind of job. But um, I think that the amount of work that I put into it was greater than the amount I might have put into my studies in school. And it wasn't, there was nothing to distract me. I mean, I could, I could work 10 hours a day, seven days a week with no problem. Uh, I could work in the lab as long as I wanted. I always took work home. I mean, it was my life. It wasn't just my job. And in a few years, I realized that I'd made the right decision because we began to find compounds active in leukemia and the excitement of the work was such that it couldn't possibly have happened, I think, in another laboratory, maybe in a much larger laboratory. So I was at the right place at the right time. And in the end, she racked up quite a few doctorates anyway. Ten <laughs> honorary ones, including one from Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute, <laughs> which always seemed poetic justice. We'll come back to Gertrude Ellian, but I want to turn now for a bit to the story of our other featured scientist today, Baruch or Barry Bloomberg. He's the person who identified the hepatitis B virus and showed it could cause advanced liver disease and cancer. He then helped develop the vaccine against it. It was the first ever vaccine against a cancer, and today it is the first vaccine given to newborn babies. It saves millions of lives each year. And it's been said that Dr. Bloomberg has prevented more cancer than any person who's ever lived. His hepatitis B discoveries involved travel to unusual places around the world and a fascination with anthropology and genetics, virology and immunology. But this Indiana Jones was a pretty quiet guy who started his education at a yeshiva, what he called a Jewish parochial school, where he learned all the usual elementary school things and then spent an additional half day on Hebrew in the Torah and the Talmud. He didn't know back then that medicine would be his calling, he told the Academy of Achievement in 2000. But looking back, he thinks that the yeshiva training prepared him well. Well, I think, the, I think it's very useful in scientific thinking uh, because it's not based uh, entirely on logic, you know. I mean, uh, Talmudic reasoning is not straight Greek logic. It contains strong elements of that. The, uh, uh, the, uh, the Talmudists were very influenced by Greek thinking. But it, it, it also contains a great deal of intuitive uh, thought is involved. Uh, the, in, in, a, in an odd way, the disrespect for authority is incorporated in it as well. Uh, be, because uh, the, uh, you, you very often uh, have uh, you know, experts, in effect, you know, well-known and respected people uh, arguing a point. And uh, the, the most senior one doesn't always win. 
and and sometimes somebody who's consistently right is wrong from time to time. So the the notion of questioning that interpretations uh, have to in a way be based on your own going through uh, the uh, data and the arguments that pertain to it. I think that's a very, uh, you know, people get that in a variety of ways, and um, perhaps uh, somewhat romantically, I've, I've, I've always thought that, that some of my scientific thinking uh, derived uh, from that. That thinking could have led him towards law instead, but... Well, one of the reasons that I didn't become a lawyer is that my father was a lawyer, and he strongly advised me not to be a lawyer. By the time he was a teenager, he was in a small New York City public high school, one that has graduated three Nobel laureates, far Rockaway High. And at that point, he was inclined toward physics and math, like his uncle, a prominent mathematician. But World War II was on, so at 17, he enlisted in the Navy, joining a special program where you completed college and then went off to officer's training. And, uh, and I spent uh, several years in that, and then, I mean, I had a very uh, unheroic uh, Navy experience. But that Navy experience was very good. And I've often said that I think I, I gained a great deal from that. Uh, you have to plan ahead. You work on, uh, on contingencies. That is, if plan A isn't successful, then plan B is already in place. I mean, you know what plan B is. And if plan B doesn't work, you've already got plan C worked out. And, and then the other thing is that, uh, and I've been interested in, I read a lot of military history, and, and good generals and good military leaders are ones who know all the plans and the right thing to do and don't do it. Uh, because the element of surprise, you know, everybody is expecting something and that's not what happens. And it's characteristic of a lot of outstanding generals who have a kind of knowledge about how to, how to handle that. And I, and I think that approach has a kind of role in science. He only appreciated the influence in retrospect, though, because at the time he was still determined to become a physicist and mathematician. So he finished his undergraduate training in those subjects, surrounded by super bright students. And then he found himself as a deck officer, standing watch much of the time on his ship. I began to realize that, I finally realized that I wasn't bright enough to be a physicist. It takes a, a, a I'm not being uh, overly modest, but uh, it, I, it took me a long time to figure it out. But um, that clearly wasn't the direction for me to take. So, and then, but I had this, I had a year or more when I was at, when I was at sea, or, you know, I had a lot of disposable time. And I could think about it. That was really fortunate, you know, because very often when people make these career decisions, it's a, you know, kind of, uh, on a train, you know, and you can't stop. So I was, I was a bit of a loss at what to do. And then um, one evening, uh, when I was in this kind of decision-making time, uh, my father spoke to me about it. And it, and it just out of the blue uh, suggested I go to medical school, mm-hmm. which, I, which I think it's fair to say I hadn't really thought about very much because I'd taken off in another direction. And... Um, and and that uh, conversation had a, a big impact on what I uh, what I subsequently did. And furthermore, he said that uh, he thought that I should go do research, because I suppose he sensed that I had this uh, feeling for science, and I'd actually done some research as part of my undergraduate training in physics, and that he thought I should go into preventive medicine, which is exactly what happened. 
Now, you know, it's, again, this is, I definitely remember that we had, I know we had that conversation because I think I recorded it. As a matter of fact, when I started off in my medical work, medical school training in the United States and most places is therapeutic and very little emphasis on prevention. Right. But somehow or other, over the years, I, I developed that's the <laughs> direction the work uh, took. He did make a stop for training as a clinical doctor at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, the oldest public hospital in the country, and what's called a safety net hospital. He loved working there. Well, it was uh, chaotic uh, in, in many ways, and, and people have written and thought about it, but it was, it was a, uh, a major factor in my education. First of all, uh, the responsibility that was heaped on us was, uh, well, I suppose you have to, it was very large. And uh, the time demands, uh, I still think when you talk about you're doing a half day's work, that's 12 hours. <laughs> Full day's work is 24 hours. Mm. And uh, it, literally, we, we would sometimes be working, not just on duty, but working for 36 hours, you know, with very, which isn't obviously a good uh, plan. Uh, but you did get this notion that you know putting in a lot of hard, you know, a lot of hard time, and that people's lives were dependent on what you did, because we often there. Well, the, it was a charity hospital essentially, you know, tax supported, and uh, there weren't sufficient funds, uh, you know, to to provide all the help that was needed. Sadly, but it put a it put a big uh, uh, responsibility on the doctors, nurses, and the other people who were there, which they took very seriously. And we had very good morale, you know, you was you're sort of like being in the Marines, you know, you were constantly, <laughs> there was always a pressure of time and more than you could do. But that was one of the richest experiences I've had. But while he was still in medical school at Columbia University, Baruch Bloomberg had a couple of other formative experiences, one with a professor named Charlie Reagan. And Charlie had, had a great capacity to be critical of data. You know, you would hear some sort of statement about some great new therapy, and he said, well, what's the data that supports that? You know, anybody can say whatever they want. You've you've got to look and see actually what the data is. So this side, he wasn't, uh, uh, he was was critical, uh, but not in a negative sense. He was critical in the sense that he wanted to see what, what what supported the statement. And, uh, and that was drilled into us by Charlie. And it was, uh, it was a, a very, uh, very positive and helpful. And in, in just thinking about matters, in particu- particularly in medicine, because you know, people are very anxious to uh, think that a new therapy is really working. Well, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And you have to look at, the, uh, look at what the data is and say uh, you know, what you can make of that. And there was another influential figure at Columbia who would arrange for Barry Bloomberg to do the work that would eventually lead him to hepatitis B. What I did do when I was in medical school, I um, I always liked traveling. I read a lot of travel books when I was a kid. I mean, I read a whole lexicon of Arctic explorers and uh, explorers in the tropics and undersea research. It was, you know, I was constantly going to the library and reading everything in that in that uh, shelf. And uh, so the last year when I was in medical school, um, well, it was actually my third year, in between third and fourth year, uh, I'd been influenced by, uh, by another teacher there, Professor Harold Brown, who taught us parasitology. Now, parasitology is usually a minor topic in medical school. At Columbia, it was one of the best courses I had because he was an inspired teacher. 
And there's always a big um, public health component in, uh, you know, tropical medicine. The best way to deal with it is, you know, clean water, clean food, control of disease-bearing insects. So I, um, uh, I went to work in a uh, mine, in an aluminum mine, in Suriname, in northern South America, uh, which was a fascinating place. Now, this was, uh, what, 50 years ago I was there. It uh, was uh, highly, I mean, undeveloped. There was a few miles of road. There was no interior uh, airports. Uh, uh, there were very few walking trails even. You had to go every place you went by canoe. There was a very interesting population. Uh, they were uh, indigenous uh, American, American natives, American Indians. And uh, the descendants of rebelled slaves had been a successful uh, slave rebellion there in the uh, 18th century. And uh, they were living in an African environment, you know, and, uh, and with African culture and all. Fascinating bunch of people. And uh, then there were people from Indonesia and from uh, subcontinent India. But, but the effect that it, what, what, I, what we were doing is, is, was studying the differences in, um, in disease response. And there was a striking difference between these different populations. And, uh, and that brought up this issue of uh, why some people get sick and others don't. And I could see these big disparities. And I also realized that there may be, you know, um, different populations share a common gene pool, which uh, very often is uh, the pool taken all together is different from the gene pool of other populations. But there were also big uh, cultural differences in the way they lived and the environmental conditions they lived under. So, uh, you know, I recognized even then that these differences are, could be due to genes and they could be due to the environment and that essentially everything was a, a consequence. The outcome was due to both genetic influences and environmental influences. And that is a powerful lesson uh, to learn. I mean, you can, you can change the effects of genes uh, by, some, by intervening, by exercising your will. And that's what medicine is all about in a way. I mean, when people, the genes aren't producing enough insulin, you give people insulin. And the way, the way we discovered the hepatitis B virus was actually related to this initial interest that I developed probably in Suriname, also when I was at Bellevue, because there are big differences in the way people responded to tuberculosis. I saw a lot of tuberculosis there. So uh, I decided that I wanted to uh, study uh, inherited variation. But that came about in a way by chance, uh, because I'd gone to Oxford to work on a, on a problem in physical biochemistry. But while I was there, I was introduced to this idea of polymorphisms uh, by a, a colleague of mine, Tony Allison, Anthony Allison. And in effect, it deals with uh, bio, you know, minor, very often small biochemical differences between individuals uh, that are genetically uh, controlled. And uh, we now know that many of these make up what I suppose, for lack of a better term, you, want, you can call susceptibility genes. That is, at this locus, there are different alleles, and if you've inherited one allele, then there's a higher risk of getting some diseases. That same allele, however, may, may decrease the risk for another disease. For instance, people who carry the sickle cell trait are much more resistant 
to malaria. So these uh, different susceptibility genes in a very complicated fashion of interacting with each other uh, it, it, uh, conferred uh, different risks when combined with the right environment, with the right or wrong environmental uh, factors that lead to disease. So we knew that people responded very differently. And uh, we looked and we saw, I spent years traveling around the world uh, collecting biological specimens and doing examinations on people, normal people, uh, to look for uh, the, the uh, genetic polymorphisms that in time we felt we would, we would uh, 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 be able to uh, show or learn that they were associated with particular diseases. Dr. Blumberg joined the National Institutes of Health to continue studying genetic variation and disease. And then one day in the mid-1960s, he was looking at the blood of a patient with hemophilia who'd had a lot of transfusions. He saw that the blood had developed antibodies to an unknown substance in the blood of an Australian aborigine. Well, in effect, that's the way that we discovered the hepatitis B virus as a consequence of that research. Uh, because the virus, uh, uh, when it infects people, can uh, follow several courses. Uh, one of them, people developing an acute infection, sometimes associated with uh, quite severe but time-limited disease. Uh, and then they develop an antibody against the virus, against the surface coat of the virus, and they're protected with the rest of their lives. So that's one outcome. Another outcome is that people get infected, not realize that they're infected, and become carriers of the hepatitis virus chronically. And they may stay carriers for decades, uh, but then they're at much higher risk for developing uh, uh, chronic liver disease, which is a life-shortening illness, and a primary cancer of the liver, one of the most deadly cancers that we know of, and one of the most common cancers in the world. It's the third most common cause of death from cancer in men, seventh most common cause of death from cancer in females. Mm -hmm. And chronic liver disease kills, I mean, altogether a lot more people than, than have died from AIDS, for example. You know, hepatitis B virus is a terrible killer. So, so we discovered the virus as, as a consequence because we could use the antibody who had, that had formed in one infected person to detect the virus, the surface coat of the virus in another, and then in time we identified that as the hepatitis virus. An accidental finding with earth-shaking implications. Dr. Bloomberg and his colleagues quickly developed an antibody test for blood banks so they could screen for hepatitis. But when he wrote a paper on it in 1967 showing that this hepatitis virus was responsible for liver disease and liver cancer, it was rejected at first by the Annals of Internal Medicine. In his memoir, he explained, quote, their reaction was quite understandable. None of us was a virologist. We had not been formally trained as epidemiologists, nor did we have any special expertise as hepatitis clinicians beyond our ordinary experience as physicians. He goes on, we found the hepatitis virus while we were looking at quite different things. We were outsiders, not known to the main body of hepatitis investigators, some of whom had been pursuing their field of interest for decades." End of quote. But their work was replicated by other scientists and eventually was accepted. More important, within a few months, 
Baruch Bloomberg and his colleagues realized they could make a vaccine because the virus formed a lot of surplus surface molecules called antigens. And those, the less dangerous part of the virus, could be given to people who had never been exposed to hepatitis so they would develop the antibodies needed to block the more dangerous part of the virus. Voila. It's a longer story than that, naturally, because the way they made the vaccine was expensive, and pharmaceutical companies didn't want to get on board. But ultimately, another way was found to make the vaccine. And as I said at the outset, it is one of the most important and widely used vaccines in the world. The accidental discovery earned Baruch Bloomberg the 1976 Nobel Prize in Medicine. Oh, luck has a role in everybody's career, there's no question. I mean, you can find a dozen times when it could have gone either way. We're back with Gertrude Ellian for some final thoughts. She reminded us about that Saturday she went into Burroughs' welcome looking for a job when she met George Hitchings, who would become her scientific partner for over 40 years. That Saturday interview could have been the other Saturday and someone else would have interviewed me. Uh, but all along the way, there are, I, mean, I go back and think about it often and how a particular person who wrote to me and asked for a compound and, and I sent it to him, made a discovery with it, which changed the whole line of what we were doing. So uh, you, can't, you can't do it without luck, I'm sure, but I think you have to recognize the luck when you see it. And you have to be prepared to pivot if luck comes your way, as Baruch Bloomberg did and as Gertrude Ellian did. And we did. We changed many times. We got into fields that I never expected to be in originally. I thought cancer was what I was going to do, and, and it is what I did for the first 10 years, but then it changed other things. When Trudy Ellian was working on leukemia, for example, she stumbled on a bit of serendipity. The compound she developed to treat acute leukemia in children was something called 6-mecaptopurine, and it was super successful at stopping the cancer cells from replicating, but... Then we realized the children weren't cured. So we were on the right track, but we weren't there yet. Obviously, it seemed obvious at the time that we were close because children went into remission for six months or a year then relapsed. So then we began to say, well, what happens to the drug in the body? Is there something we can do to make it better? And we studied the metabolism of the drug, and we found out that a lot of it was destroyed in the body. So we said, okay, let's try and design a compound that will release this in the leukemic cell and not harm the other cells, and maybe then it won't be destroyed as readily. So I spent several years making derivatives. One of these derivatives was as good, but not better, in leukemia. But just at that time, somebody who'd written to us for 6-mercaptopurine looked at it in the immune response in a rabbit and let us know that it inhibited the immune response. So it came and saw us and said, you know, you have some compounds that could be very interesting in the immune response. We listened and said, okay, we'll set up a screen that will try to determine whether some of these anti-leukemic compounds have activity on the immune response. 
And lo and behold, this one compound that I had made, which was equivalent in, in leukemia, was better on the immune response. Then, out of the blue, along comes a young surgeon, she told journalist Gail Eichenthal, a young surgeon who'd read the paper about the antibody response in rabbits. And says, you know, I tried 6-mercaptopurine on kidney transplants in dogs, and it really prevented the rejection for quite a long time. Do you have anything that might be better? Well, we don't know, but here, take this compound. It looks better in mice. So he goes off on a fellowship to the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston, tries it, and finds it definitely is better. And the next thing you know, it's preventing rejection of kidney transplants in man. Now, I didn't start to make a compound that would do that. But if you listen and you keep your mind open and you say, I have a related compound that looks better on the immune response and somebody asks you for it, this is what can happen. Uh, and this was sort of the story of, of our lives in a way because then we were off in the field of kidney transplantation, autoimmune disease, and so on. It sounds like um, a scientist has to be able to get along well with colleagues and, and have a spirit of team playing. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're stuck in your own laboratory not getting input. Absolutely. I think there is no question in my mind that it's a team effort. It's a team effort at the beginning and it's a team effort all the way through because there are so many aspects of drug development, of finding out what the side effects are, finding out the best way to give it, of finding out any number of things. And you can't all, you can't, one person can't do that. You could, I suppose, if you spend a lifetime on every drug. But if you want to work at it, and, and I've always compared it in a way to, uh, to an orchestra, that everybody plays his own instrument very well, but it isn't until you put them all together that you have anything that sounds like music. That's Gertrude Ellian speaking to the Academy of Achievement in 1991 and Baruch Bloomberg in the year 2000. Ms. Ellian died in 1999, Dr. Bloomberg in 2011. In their honor, we'd like to end this episode by thanking the scientists all over the world who are working overtime to unlock the secrets of COVID-19 so that they can find a vaccine and a treatment for it. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is generously funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. Be well.